0: Hello and welcome back to The Game Pit. This is episode 204 and I'm Sean and here's Ronan.
1: Hello everybody, you're very welcome back into The Game Pit and thank you for joining us this time around. Sean, we haven't got a solid name for what this type of episode is. We call it Pick It Over The Bones. We're not doing full proper reviews, but we are going through 12 games and chatting about them. I, I keep saying licking the bones, but you're not having it. Licking, no, I don't want
0: to lick any bones. I'm not having that.
1: You've changed. Now's <laughs> that
0: that a different life, alright
1: You're going to throw some ideas back at me, or it's going to be a licking the bones, and you can pick, pick the bones out of licking the bones. It's not picking over the bones. Eh. Chilling with the bones. Uh... Okay, your first game, Sean. Rolling Heights.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Rolling Heights from AEG designed by John D. Claire. it's effectively a city building game you can't really call it a bag building because there's no bag in it but you're you're building up a a collection of meeples which you're going to roll into a box and when you roll them into the box some of them are going to land on their side some of them are going to hopefully stand up if you're lucky and a lot of them are going to lie down the ones that go on their side will give you a, some sort of power towards that colour of meeple and the ones that stand up give you even stronger power towards that kind of meeple. And what you're doing is using the strength of all your working meeples, the ones that line down on their side and standing up, and you're building new buildings in an area control on, on the board. And as you get more, more buildings, you get more coloured meeples into your collection to roll. You're building up your tableau on the board, but you're also building up your ability to get new buildings into the Rolling height city run.
1: So in terms of when you're building, you said it was area Controlled in there, you said it was a tableau there. Is it a shared city that you're building into?
0: Yeah, it's a shared board everyone's building into. You start in a certain corner of it, you're building outwards, and you're scoring points on the board itself. But at the end of the game, you're going to divide it into quarters, and each quarter will score depending on how much people have got there and the size of the buildings
1: they've got in there. And each of the buildings, tell me if I'm wrong, there's like a foundation tile to them? They have like a certain function within themselves?
0: So yeah, the foundation tile will quite often give you that new meeple to roll and there's all different powers that you don't have access to right at the beginning. You've only got access to the very basic building materials and there's different things that allow you to re-roll, there's different things that allow you to move around the city quicker. I think they're the pink meeples, but some of them also have end-of-game scoring on them as well.
1: And if you were to take away... Sort of the three D aspect, and I know that's it's not complete to be ignored. Sort of the glamour of the components, I like, oh, the glamour. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just tile laying doing this. Would that feel interesting in and of itself as just a tile laying game?
0: I think it would because of getting the different powers of the meeples coming into your hand and being able to roll them and. You can only roll 10 ever, but you'll end up the game with maybe 14, 15. So you're choosing your hand of meeples to roll every turn. So you're kind of working it to... What or those one of us who turn. are
1: challenged in the hand department, your hands of meeples. <laughs>
0: well, indeed. indeed. But you, you mentioned the components, and it is pleasing to the eye when you're looking at it, and It does stand out of the crowd. But I have a problem
1: with the components.
0: What they look like is, you know, the little single Lego, tiny little Lego squares.
1: I may have made several lightsabers out of them in my year. (laughs) Well, the components are basically those, but they
0: don't actually stick together. They just go over the top, and if anything, like a gust of wind, a nudge of the table, they are all over the table, especially when you're building them six high. And it's a bum ache to gather them all back up. And work out what building had five, what building has six, and build them all again. And it's happened a few times. I have gone out to the Lego shop and bought some replacements in the same colours because they work so much better. And if they fall over, they stay together. I'm getting sh- I'm getting a big big head shaking at me now. <laughs>
1: it's functional. I was gonna throw form over function at you from the components, but I, I think you've covered that nicely. So there you go. I'm gonna go to <laughs> The fact that when you're rolling your meeples, you don't know exactly what you're going to get has been suggested it makes rolling heights completely tactical because you cannot fully plan your turn before you go into it. Do you think there is some longer-term strategy? And How long does it play, how long does it take if it is tactical every turn?
0: It's an hour-long game, but you don't have to settle with what you've got until you over half or exactly half or more of your meeples are working. So you can keep rolling. There are, as I said, there's meeples that allow you to re-roll things.
1: Will they do it every time? Will, like, the the re-roll meeple, will it let you re-roll every single time?
0: Not 100%, no, because that meeple also has to stand up or go on its side to get the power of it. So if that meeple would stand up, then you could re-roll two of your meeples. If the one that allows you to stand things up stands up, then you you can turn two of your meeples on their side or one of them straight from their back up to the top. So there are things you can do to slightly mitigate, but you're right, it is a tactical game at heart.
1: So, rolling heights. There's a lot of gimmicks in there. The building up of the towers, which is form over function. The rolling of the meeples, which is kind of like rolling dice, but it's meeples instead. Is it a selection of gimmicks or is there an actual game there which will stand up to repeated plays and that people want to keep in their collection?
0: I had similar concerns. I did kickstart it. No, because I, well there you go. Because I liked everything around the gimmick of rolling the meeples instead of dice. I think it actually works. You do have a little bit of control, more control than I thought you would do. But I really enjoy the building up your collection of meeples. And I really enjoy sort of the tactical placing of your buildings and choosing the right building to advance onwards to get the new meeples. So it's actually become one of our favourites. And we have tried it with other people and they've been quite surprised by it as well, how good it is. So rolling heights is going to be a strong
1: 72. Oh, I ain't giving scores. No, 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 no. You said this was not picking over the bones. I am not score ready.
0: <laughs> I don't get to give many scores, so I am
1: giving the scores. <laughs> you, you retain that right. That's okay. Okay. I'm being convinced to try it. I'm going to come back to AEG's naming conventions later. Yeah. Right. Dorf Romantic from 2022. One to six players. Six. Uh, designed by Michael Palm and Lucas Zach from Pegasus Spieler. Door is a cooperative tile layer. There are two types of tiles. There are those with goals on and there are those with just terrain on. To start with, the first three tiles will have goals on and they will give you a type of terrain. It will be fields, it will be forests, it will be village or it will be streams or railways and it will say I want to be part of a five size field. Then everyone will start drawing terrain tiles. You don't never have to match anything on the side of a terrain. It's very freeform. Apart from the streams and the railways. Must always make sense. Be contiguous. And at the point in which you've fulfilled one of these goals. For example, let's say that field tile became part of a size 5 field. You take the goal off it. You've scored 5 points for that game. The next player draws another goal tile. And you're trying to get all the way through the goal tiles. Now that is the initial first game. As you go through... Depending upon how many points you score each game, you get a certain number of crosses to cross off and a very simple one-sheet campaign thing. And as you cross off crosses, you go along paths, and when you get to something to cross it off, you get to unlock something. And that is going to be very simple stuff. Some of the initial ones, you unlock a wooden heart. At the point in which you play a terrain tile during the game, if you put the heart on it, you're going to score one extra point for every side that matches onto the one you've played. Because like I said, sides don't have to match other things you can do is like we've unlocked a warehouse meaning when you draw a terrain tile you don't have to play it you can put it on the warehouse we can have one in storage and someone else can choose to play that at the right time later you can unlock more goal tiles unlock ways of multiplying your scores for goals if you get a certain tile within that selection all the way through it's a very gentle way of giving you slightly more drip feeding you after every game no matter how badly or well you do you score some points you get along on the campaign, you get one or two more tiles to give you slightly more ways of scoring, so your scoring will gradually get higher and higher and higher, giving you more and more things to do and introducing more and more gentle rules, which all make sense within a very chilled co-op tile layer, dwarf romantic.
0: So you say very chilled, very easy going. Is it almost too loose? Is it just so loose that you don't feel like you've got a direction, or is there that sort of drive to win? There's
1: Definite direction because you can only have three gold tiles out at once, but there's there's a collection of them, something like thirty. So if you're not using your time to get those cycling through, you're going to run out of terrain tiles, and you won't have got anywhere near your pile of gold tiles. So you won't have scored many points. And there's always that thing of as you unlock more stuff, there's more little ways that you're getting pulled. Like there becomes flags that come out, and flags will score. For every train of the type that matches within their area. So if you get a couple of forest flags down, you're thinking, well, if every time I put this down, it's going to be two points if I can grow this area out. However, if I use this tile for the village that's on it, because the tri- usually the tiles have got multiple types of train on there. If I score this village, I'll get another gold tile out allow me the possibility of scoring more goal tiles as we go along. So there is a slight pull between different things, but you're always wanting to achieve, and you're constantly achieving, and during each game and during the campaign, the game always gives you this feeling of, yeah, I've done something positive, I've done something positive, I'm getting somewhere. Almost every tile play either scores for you or you're setting up, like I'm setting up a three village so that the next time a a village goal comes out, I can add it on there and I've almost done that. And that becomes part of of creating this little world for yourselves that you're doing. I was reading the comments on BGG and one, one of the comments actually stood
0: out to me. It was very descriptive. What the person said was it was a really slow start to the point where he nearly put the game down and said, I don't want to play that anymore. But he progressed because his son was a fan of the video game. And the more he played it, the more interesting it became. And it got to the point where he couldn't stop playing it because it became almost moorish. And he just had to keep playing it. Even though there wasn't really taxing problems, he just wanted that little tickle more, that little tickle more. Had that been a similar feeling to you? Did you have a, a tough start or were you into it straight away?
1: I was quite into it straight away. And actually, I was quite surprised that it did have this sense of progress. It it does the dopamine app thing of every time. It's it's giving you constant quick scoring. It's not, we play this for 45 minutes. It takes like maybe half an hour to play. We play this half an hour and then we all score at the end. This is, we score, we score. Tick, tick, ding, ding, candy crush. you're scoring there's more look at this one something new to do I never had that slow feeling at the beginning it is very simple at the beginning the first game is very very simple you're just going over and you don't get that slight pull in different directions and yes as you go through more interesting things come out and it sucks you in because you're looking at a campaign and it shows you what you can unlock I can unlock a circus I can unlock a windmill the locomotive naturally we had to go for that one first it's a railway come on it's the coolest thing in the world and You see, you're like, oh, I wonder what the circus does. Oh, I wonder what the locomotive does. I wonder what this does. And it just gives you that, like I say, it's that at It's got different ways of sucking you in. It's the constant sense of achievement that adds to the whole pleasant overall feeling of we're doing something productive here. We're not. We're just playing a game.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had absolutely no desire to play this at all. It, I didn't even understand what the, what the name was about or anything. I was like, what? what? Village ah. lover. Well, there you go. And you've mentioned to me it might be a really good game to play with James. So now it's it's firmly on my radar, Randall. what
1: What's your final thoughts on Dorf Romantic? It's like a gentle late spring stroll in the countryside. A lovely shared experience. The score that you get is about 30% dependent upon tile draw. Because if all the goals come out from four to five to six, it's very easy to score them. If they come out higgledy-piggledy, it's harder. But no matter what you score, you're making progress. So it's always pleasant. It's always happy. You can't take it too seriously. You have to find the balance of the discussion around the table. As you unlock more stuff, there's, there are multiple things you can do with each tile. If you don't talk at all, then what's the point in you not being there? But you have to be careful not to tell people what to do. And we've been genuinely loving playing Dolph Romantic. It's not the greatest game in the world, but it as a shared family experience, we've been loving it. A little bit
0: deeper than Dorf Romantic, I've been playing Marrakesh from Queen Games and Steffenfeld. It's part of the City collection number four, and it's the only brand new game in that city collection. So in Marrakesh, the general ethos of the game is that you have these little wooden hexagons, dobbers. and they're called keshis. There you go. They're called keshis. They come in twelve colours, and on your board are 12 coloured areas. And what you want to be doing generally is putting those keshis into the matching coloured areas. When you put your workers and use the actual action of the area, you're doing loads of different things. You're going up tracks, you're moving along a river, you're unlocking tiles, uh, which are oases in the desert, you're performing to crowds, you're doing a load of different things. I'm not going to go through them all.
1: I think you just did.
0: (laughs) I really haven't. I really haven't. And in typical Steffenfeld, everything scores points for you. Now, the way you're going to do it is the different thing about this game. It does have a cube tower or a keshi tower. So you're all going to start with one of each colour keshi, each age. And then you're going to choose from behind your screen three keshis. And everyone's going to do likewise. And you're going to reveal the colours, put your workers on into the areas that match the colour of the Keshis, and then drop everyone's Keshis into the cube tower. And When they come out, in player order, you're going to choose. And if there was two blues there, I could choose two blues, which means I'm taking my blue and Ronan's, or maybe I didn't put a blue in at all. And that's, that's how you generate your turns. There's so much to talk about, but that's where I'm going to stop. What have you heard about Marrakesh? Or have you got any questions?
1: I've got loads of questions about Hamburg. Yeah. (laughs)
0: don't start moaning he's gonna start what do the names even mean what are you talking about we're we're talking about amsterdam i know what we're talking about don't worry (laughs) about
1: it right in new york city sean (laughs) right yeah in new york city you're saying there the action selection cube tower keshi tower because they're cylindrical there is a suggestion that the that whole idea might be a waste of time because unless they land like rolling meeples, I guess, on their end, they're going to go through anyway. You're throwing so few in with two players that that's pointless. I've also heard that with four players, the game gets very, very long. It's quite long anyway. So really only works with three players. So I'm going to go, was the Keshi Tower of any use whatsoever? Would it just have been fine just to have them all go out and people just draft from there? And game length. Both those things. There you go. Two questions. Hit me. The Keshi
0: Tower, as opposed to everything I'd heard, really did work. On more than a few occasions, it held two or three back, and we did. we only got a very limited choice, and then we got a massive choice the next round when they all come tumbling out. So it actually worked better than I thought it did. Whether it's worth it, I think it's worth it just to mix it up and to give you those uneven turns, because it would become very formulaic. Okay, well, I'm the first player. You've shown me you've got two blues. I'm going to take those two blues. It gives the person a slight chance to maybe retain that blue and get it on their turn. So, yeah, I think it does work.
1: I'm going to go, it sounds like it doesn't. Game length?
0: <laughs> Game length, I've play. I played a couple of two-player games of it, and it went about an hour and a half. I think you are... Very quickly, you know you know what you're doing for that round. You know generally, yes, you might not get the exact Keshis that you want to power your action, but your workers are already pre-placed. So the only real decision is what Keshis do I want and what I'm going to do with my worker. Right? Because what, you've got two options with your worker. You can either get another Keshi and just power a future move, or you can use the action of the colour you're in and do what it does.
1: Okay, so you're claiming that works. I'd have to believe you. There are 12 Mm -hmm. different mechanisms. He's been able to blend some mechanisms before. You and I have both criticised Daffenfeld for throwing too many mechanisms in. I'm going to say Bonfire, for example. In this case, does he manage to blend them all together, or does it have a disjointed feel with too many different things going on?
0: I think quite a lot of them can power each other. That's really the whole magic of Marrakesh for me, is there is so many things to do, but if I was to use my pink worker, I can move up on the black track or the white track, or I can get an extra keshi by moving up on those tracks. And yeah, so a lot of them power each other, and they do feed off each other. You can't do everything. Now, what he does throw in, and it's a typical Feld thing, is he throws in that barrier. And in this game, it's not something that you have to pass to to get somewhere. In this one, it, it's the old one feeding the people or funding the people. And it is so punishing. You have to do it. You just You just have to do it. So that felt a bit too much. It felt a bit too punishing for me.
1: Really, the only mechanism criticism that I saw was that Scoring is going to tend to be close. No matter what you do, you're scoring points for everything. It's about squeezing out efficiency. But there are VP tiles, which can bring a bit of swinging because some are worth more than others. I'm talking out of my behind.
0: There are victory point tiles, but you've got to work towards getting them.
1: They don't flip. I think someone said they flip over, no?
0: They flip over at the end of your turn, so everyone will know what's available coming into their turn. Yes, yeah, someone might nick the one that you've been working towards. You you need to get a certain amount of certain colours. So you might need two purples, two yellows and an orange to get the big money tile. But there might be two other tiles that have those same combination of keshis and they'll add up to the same anyway. So I I didn't get that. I didn't feel like it was that punishing. And if I was building up something, I was always able to get something.
1: Beautiful. Right. The physical impression of Kuzco... Apparently, it looks absolutely beautiful. Because there's already a game called Kuzco, which is already re-imple- a re-implementation of another game. They're now releasing another game called Kuzco, which is a re-implementation of a different game. Yeah, that, that's probably going too far. <laughs> is this is this Java Kuzco or is it Bora Bora Kuzco? Is it? Anyway, it looks beautiful, apparently. <laughs> it does look beautiful. It's sprawling colours
0: all over the shop table presence is a bit overwhelming everything is massive they have brought out the essential edition I think to combat that where everything is slightly smaller Uh,
1: three Um, three editions of a game that only came out a couple of months ago three (laughs) editions so far
0: I think they actually got a lot of criticism people couldn't fit it on their table your player boards are like central boards and then you've got the central board and everything that goes around it so
1: and then people said the essential edition looks depressing when you've seen the other one (laughs)
0: I mean Is that a people problem Or is that a queen problem
1: It's a queen problem Producers, It's like they think they exist Without the rest of the world They're in a bubble We can name our games anything It doesn't really matter We can charge whatever we want We'll kickstart things And not deliver them And just sell them in shops It doesn't they, Why are they in contact with reality
0: Yeah, Egypt's like me Still buy them You, you You're can't. the problem I am the problem
1: I've said everything I've got to say about um, Tartuli Put. I just turned it over. I can't see the name of the next one now. <laughs> I've just changed page. <laughs> yeah.
0: Marrakesh is a really, really fun, enjoyable, thinky game. Now, I really do understand that there are people, and Natalie is one of them, that will have a different mindset because you are trying to read the other players and maybe there will be a bit of hate drafting in there or maybe you're needs completely scupper somebody else's needs and that has to be in your mindset going into it I absolutely adored it I love Feld anyway I was expecting to enjoy it so maybe there's some sort of confirmation bias but for me it's an 85
1: damn you've made me want to play this now and I hate you for that because Queen don't deserve my money <laughs> well they're not going to get your money they got mine yeah okay Ether fields. 2020, one to four players, according to BGG best with two. Seeing as, as you I, and I had this discussion, I looked it up because you said a lot of people are saying it's very good solo ball. There are a lot of comments and ratings on BGG. I have noticed to be very careful with them because a lot of them nowadays are from solo play, which is very different from multiplayer play, and a lot of them are from BGA only. And in fact, I was listening to a podcast. The other day, I listened to like two or three episodes of it and then I realised, they said it eventually, they only ever play games together online. They never meet each other and play in person. And while that's a perspective, I think you should really throw that out front if that's how you're reviewing things. Yeah, I think it, it does change the dynamic. I just think if you're going to do it, say it. And maybe also games need a solo rating and a multiplayer rating. Or maybe that's going too far. I don't know. Anyway, Etherfields, Michael Orash, Awaken Realms. You'll find yourself within a dream. After having struggled through a rule book, and we'll come back to that, but you find yourself within a dream, and it's very Seventh Continent esque, in that you are on a square card. There are locations on your own card, and there are other cards in which you can move across to. Depending on how many people are in your party, you each have your own figure, and. You're given a deck of cards, and over the course of Between Dreams as you go, because it's a campaign game, you're able to add cards into this. There's a shared little tableau of items which you can build up and use. And basically, there are three currencies, and one allows you to move, and the other two allow you to interact with things in the world, mostly, either in a violent way or in a negotiation way. And you really don't have a clue what's going on. You literally, all you know is you're in a dream. And you go through the first bit, and a thing pops out, and then you kind of work out, oh, how do we deal with this thing? Ah, oh, there's a way we can trap it. Because as you interact with the cards, quite often they swap out and get replaced. And a different one will go in the same place, but you've changed the game state somehow. And then you go through this quite short initial dream, and you're a bit kind of, mm, OK, what's going on here? You have health, you can get a bit of experience, you can power up special crystals. And then you pop into this other world, which is a little connected map, Ticket to Ride style which you can walk around to get to places of interest and initially what you're doing is you go and you get to another place of interest and then you drop into another dream, completely unrelated to the first dream. And then the same thing. You're doing Seventh Continent. You're on square cards. You're interact. You're looking for clues. There are visual clues on the board as to what might be going on when you're looking at things, not the board, I should say, the cards. You might get to an area where there's different colour options you can do, and you've got to look back over the tiles you've been through and say, well, that looks like it'll pop me back at the beginning. That would be bad, and or oh, that looks like I might go there. Well, that one looks like it could be useful. So there's a little bit of guessing as to what you're going to do as you interact with these tiles there is either a storybook you can look through and it says, right, read 198 and do what it says. Read 2022, do what it says. You know what I'm saying. Thankfully, some lunatic of a fan who's a very lovely person has put that all online for you and the rule book online and has turned it into a bit of a tutorial to help you learn. That's very handy. If you're going to learn Etherfields, I suggest look going on the forums and looking up, it's just a webpage, not an app or anything. And you can go there and it will talk you through this first dream. And as you go through these dreams, you take a bit of damage, you get a bit of experience points. You can then go on that dream world map when you come out of a dream and buy some more cards for your deck. You can put some cards that are in play permanently. There's a limit to them and you can kind of power those up. But you don't really know what you're doing. And eventually, if you want to round enough, you'll get pulled into a slumber, which is a smaller version of a dream, which is over very quickly. And you get to do some stuff in there. And then you're back to wandering around and you go into another dream, which is completely different to the previous dreams, but you're doing the same thing. You're looking at the squares and you're going around and you're interacting and you're slowly getting an idea that you're in this world that your characters have been in previously. There are four characters in the game and they have sort of different strengths and weaknesses, although you get to build your deck a lot, so you can take them any way you want. And I was really puzzling about when am I going to review Etherfield, Sean? So I'm six dreams in. And I feel like I still don't know where I'm going. I'm not too sure what I'm doing, and I've barely started on the game. But I'm going to try and review it anyway, because, damn it, six streams in, it surely must be long enough to give at least initial thoughts. I'm going to see if you've got any <laughs> thoughts for me. Right from the beginning, when it was
0: 1st kickstarted or game-founded, one thing that stood out to me is the whole idea behind this game is that you don't know what's happening, and but you you will have to have clues. You will have to have clues in the narrative, as you said, clues in the pictures. You'll have to have the exact right type of story engaging, but not confusing. Have they nailed it? Have they done that correctly and on point, or is it confusing?
1: It's still confusing. <laughs> I mean, I'm intrigued enough. I guess, to keep going. But also a large part of that is because like, likes of Mike Delisio will say, I know this is a big ask, but play 20 games, 20 dreams, and you'll be playing one of the best games you've ever played. And I'm not not having fun, but it is very simple play. I don't really feel like I'm in much danger. You can always wake up whenever things are getting too much because you build up damage, but also you build up your, the power of your cards. And at some point you're like, oh, I don't know if I can survive another dream. And we all just wake up. And we lose sort of our cards that we've put in play and stuff. But then we just go back in again and reset. The one thing I think that's dragging a bit is this going around the world. Where you have to go into these slumbers. Now I I know that the slumber deck develops over time. And then there's, there's this special card that when you get to the bottom of it. I've reset the slumber deck when I've woken up. And I don't know if I'm supposed to. And the whole slumber thing for a side game that comes up continually is not very well explained. And I'm very, really not convinced I'm doing the slumber thing right. I may have supposed to have hit this special card by now. People might be listening to this going, you idiot. Yes, you are. Which will yeah. trigger something, but I haven't done it yet. And what's kind of a bit amazing is that I've got the second edition stuff. So I've got the second edition rulebook, which is an improvement. And it definitely reads like the app does now, or not the app, the web page. And I've got the second edition world map which removes a lot of the faffing round, and I'm still finding it faffy. And apparently you were forced to have way more slumbers previously than I'm having, and I'm just finding them a needless distraction at the moment. I'm very confused as to why it doesn't just make you go dream to dream to dream to dream, which takes long enough and just streamline it a bit.
0: That was literally the thing that kept coming out, even in positive comments, that kept coming out and in all the comments on PGG. The slumber mechanism generally for people gets Old very quickly, and a lot of people have got the same questions as, as you have there, Rodan. That you just look, why does it exist? Is there not a better way of doing this sort of thing? The last thing for me, really, you, know, you have touched upon it with the rule book. How was the rule book? Because I remember, I think the last time I tried to read uh, a Wakem Realms rule book was The Great Wall. And I really struggled. And I think it's the one thing that continually lets them down as a company. I think everything else about them is amazing. They do
1: such brilliant products. They're so imaginative. But the rule books tend to let them down. So I was lucky enough that I didn't tackle this with the first edition rule book. The web page was helpful. I still had to watch videos. Because they have dove, as they do, into a concept. And Awaken Realms is a company that very often demands patience. It is almost out of sync with the modern day. And it says, no, you're not rushing this. You're not getting this quickly. We're going for you to dive in and spend hours and hours and hours of your time in this game, which for Omni gamers like us, with the podcast everything, I play loads of those games, often clashes with what we're trying to do. Luckily enough, I've been off work for a while. Turns out I've got a bit of glandular fever. No one knew, there you go. Sorry if I kissed you recently. I've had the time to get into it a bit. You have to know what you're getting into. Now, in terms of the quality of the rulebook, the second edition is way better. But the point I guess I'm trying to make is that you still feel lost. And it's something I've touched on before in games, where when you don't know what you're trying to achieve and you don't know who you are, which was a Jeff Engelstein newsletter that came out recently, and you don't know what the whole concept is, it makes it much, much more difficult to be sure that what you're doing is correct. On top of that, each dream is different and has its own little rules. Like We got into one with sliding tiles, that you actually get to move the tiles around. But we weren't sure if we were doing that correctly, because after the first level, the three levels, it seemed ridiculously easy. And we are like, we're pretty sure we've done that wrong, but we can't see anywhere here. Because there's no rule book for that dream. And I do wish that perhaps they kicked out some of the slumber rubbish... And giving you a rule book for each dream that made it clear, I am playing this right. Now, again, another thing Mike said is just just go with it. It doesn't matter how you play it because it's your experience. It's about letting yourself go and fall into the dream world and go with the flow. And that's how you'll experience it. I think that when we're designed to learn rules, when we come from a Euro background, we want to know that we're playing it right, which may not be the right approach for ether fields for right or for wrong.
0: so the last question really is, are you going to persevere? Is it a game that you can see yourself playing through to maybe even a conclusion?
1: Conclusion's a big ask. (laughs) There's a (laughs) lot of cards in that game. I think there's like 40-something dreams like that. And I've got a second campaign because it came with it. It was the stretch goal. It's up against some competition at the moment for campaign games that we are looking to continue. And I've got ISS Vanguard on the horizon as well so it's it's really touch and go there could be a Saturday that we do our job sit down we've got a few hours and we go let's crack out Etherfields and get into it I feel like there could be that snap moment of oh I'm enjoying it I want to see what's next it's left me a trail of breadcrumbs do I go here do I go there here's an idea are like, you getting the idea that we were here previously and we've somehow forgotten what we were doing and there's elements working towards us and there's elements working against us i'm continuing on promise of more rather than what i've experienced so far with etherfields lovely
0: lovely okay so i would like to bring to the table idrasil chronicles coming from Ludenorte and cedric leboeuf idrasil chronicles is a remaking of the aforementioned idrasil and one of the things they've done with it they've Upped the ante and the table presence. So, what you have is a huge 3D tree where you're moving your figures up and down the branches of it. Uh, it looks a little bit like the Everdell tree, but better. And it's kind of like a tower defense game in that you are one of the gods, you have uh, your powers, and you're moving around. And there are other creatures like Hell and Surt and Loki are moving around and they're trying to either hinder your progress or to actually take over Asgard itself. And there's wind conditions if they get to what they need to do. And you've just got to keep knocking them back. You've got to keep batting them back and try and survive to a certain point where the Tree of Life gives you uh, the victory. And that's pretty much what you're doing. You're moving around. You're getting things. You're improving yourself. You're getting assistance from elves and from humans. I know you've played the original Ronin.
1: And boy was it punishing. Not an easy game. Not an easy game at all. I did win it eventually with like a crack team. We had to like hone and train some troops and get them down to like, right, this is the best of the best. Can we do this? We did it. Great. And it was it was frustrating at times to be honest for people who didn't want to really dig into a very tough co-op. But it was fun. It was very simple actions. Very simple car play. It was the timing of where to go and which track to control at a certain time. Does Yggdrasil Chronicles live up to the punishing reputation of the original?
0: No. The honest answer is no. They've got an easy version, which is almost impossible to fail. And then what they call the hard version, I would say, is the standard game. Yeah, you could fail, but you should really win it. Then, on top of that, they've got a campaign the rules were changed, they can bring new characters into play, and you're actually going to upgrade your character, whether it be Thor, Odin, whatever, as you go. And you could get slightly better at doing things and the tasks as this task gets slightly harder. I haven't been on the campaign, I've played the easy game and I've played the, the normal game. We've been able to defeat them quite easily.
1: I was about to ask you whether the campaign is supposed to introduce variety but swinginess, but I'm going to skip past that. I expect to report later on with regards to it. (laughs) Lots and lots of iconography to handle. The first game was very easy to play. This one introduces more mechanisms, slightly more mechanisms, more things you can do. But there is some criticism that there's a lot of iconography that you have to learn and get your head around.
0: The only real iconography is just the symbols of the different worlds. So... You've obviously got the symbol for Midgard, Asgard, the world of the elves, the world of the dwarves. It's just really getting your head around each of those worlds. It's a little bit like um, Marrakesh in that each world does a different thing and you can do a different action depending on what world you're standing on. So the world of the elves allows you to take an upgrade card which allows you to be better at doing something on the game dwarves uh, no that might be the dwarves sorry that's the dwarves and there's another one that gives you dice that allow you to defend yourself a little bit better when you're fighting the enemies and one thing about this one you always defeat the enemy regardless of what happens you always defeat the enemy it's just how much damage you take in defeating the enemy
1: well I want to try it I love the first one a fair amount but it dropped out of rotation so for you are you going to carry on are you going to continue into the campaign is it drawing you in
0: it's definitely drawn me in i really enjoy the way the the enemies all chain off themselves so the great worm yormagard or something the great worm in midgard as the Ur-M-Gard gets more powerful and goes across midgard he kills more people and they end up powering hell and the more Power hell has the more difficult it is to defeat her, and the more sort of wounds she'll inflict on you while you defeat her, and things like that. Loki moves around the map, really hampering everything you do, getting the frost giants to defend the others, and just making a nuisance of himself. And it feels really thematic, even though the actions in themselves, much like the original, are very simple. You really do feel like you're up against it and you're having to control. All of these different aspects. So we really got on well with it. James absolutely adored it and wants to play the campaign. So I would imagine his enthusiasm will fire me onwards to do that run. So Hydrosol Chronicles is a 78.
1: Next up is Dark Knight Returns, a 2022 game for one player and very secretly, very secretly for two players. We'll come back to that. (laughs) 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 it's weird i don't know designed by daryl andrews and morgan don'tanville from Cryptozoic. Cryptozoic are a company that sits outside the bgg community sean we did a couple of pit stops for Cryptozoic games because they own a lot of ips and they're among the most watched of our videos for games that made zero splash amongst quote gamers bgg gamers not the wider community, because they sell games by the hundreds of thousands that we pay no attention to. Death Note Confrontation, Dragon Ball Z games. They sell them and sell them and sell them. They're
0: all about the license, aren't they? They're, they're all about more garnering towards the license and the fans off the license than the actual gamers. I say gamers get dragged along because of the mechanisms and the games that they create. But I think it's mainly like Batman fans would look at this and go, oh, it's a board game about Batman.
1: There is no doubt that if you like Batman, (laughs) this is angling towards you. It's Gotham City. You are Batman. It is a short campaign over four scenarios which continue through. So the game board state and your state at the end of one scenario rolls in directly to the next one and the next one and the next one. So you are managing the whole situation as overall as well as attempting to do whatever it is you're trying to do in each scenario before the timer runs out. There's an overall game timer called the Doomsday Clock, which you must keep an eye on over all the scenarios it'll continue to tick around and there's also a game time you've got limited number of rounds to do your goal for example in the very first one you've got to run around gotham looking at clues when you get enough clues two-face will pop up and then you've got to defeat two-face simple as that well it is simple as that and it's quite easy to win the first scenario if you took it as a standalone within the bigger context though you have to make sure that you're keeping an eye on gotham city and controlling it and that feels very Batman thematic, because a lot of the push and pull in Batman stories is that he's always got his eye on the bigger picture. And I could do this now, but will that cause a cascade? And a, you know, that neighborhood will be on fire, or actually, will end up leaving a power vacuum, and worse, people will move in and things. So we introduce Shades. Now it's based on the other more classic graphic novel series, so I'd expect there to be some depth and different levels to the story herein. The mechanisms are that it's. Played in blocks of four rounds. At the start of the four rounds you draw 12 cards. Some of them are going to be your fight deck to help you when you've got to fight mutants and the big baddies. Some of them will be sort of detective cards you can hold in your hand and play at the appropriate time to manage what's going on. Because the enemies to Batman here are not just the mutants you fight, the police, they get in your way and are after you, and you can fight them but at a cost to yourself. But you can't let too many of any of these things come out because riots will start kicking off. And the press is an enemy but you can't attack the press initially you've got to use uh commissioner gordon to go around and handle the press for you because if any of these three groups get too numerous in any area of gotham then you've got problems also it's not easy to get around gotham and every four rounds you get to actually draw routes on the map for yourself to help you get around the place and get to where you need to be once you've played through once you get a bit of control over setup and your first thing is sort of throw these things down and then quite quickly as you play it will dawn on you I've set this up really badly, <laughs> this is incredibly difficult. So you do learn how to get better at the game. You play through, you use your cards, when you get to a fight, you're rolling dice, you have Batarangs, you have mini goals that you go after that will give you better batterang cards, or these Bat-Signal Tokens you can spend for certain powers. There will be enemies coming along, and very interestingly, you decide, within that four block it tells you, at the end of this round, mutants will come out, then police then press the mutants this is the total number of, of enemies that are going to appear over these four rounds. You choose how many of each. So you've got a lot of control of what's going on. And really you're constantly stitching yourself up and then trying to fix the things that you've done to yourself within this overall move, roll dice, find the clues, beat the big baddie. And it goes through and, and no spoilers, I don't think it's, it's a pretty old graphic novel series. Uh, Superman turns up and in the end, you and him have, end up having a bit of a beef and there's the Joker to deal with and all sorts. Very interesting take, a very unusual take on a game, Sean. Any thoughts for me?
0: When I first saw this, I was obviously drawn in by the artwork, because I think the Dark Knight Returns comic series had some of the best artwork ever in comics, and it really encapsulated the feeling of Batman. But... I was just concerned whether the narrative or the theming would really drag me in. You you did say it does feel like Batman having to deal with the press and having to deal with the police, but
1: is there any writing in the game? Is there any narrative that's drawing you along? No, very little actual writing. I think that the story and theme will come through if you're familiar with Batman comics, especially if you're familiar with Dark Knight Returns. You can see how a very mechanical game is putting you in the story, but you have to put as much in as it's given back to you. It's a very mechanical setup, which you can, if you understand, you you can take the theme out of and go, oh yeah, this is happening, that's happening, that makes sense, I can see why that's there. It doesn't throw it in your face, it's not reading Reams, it's not saying this happens. There's events that happen, You have a big control over what events happen. You have a big control over lots of things. They are reminiscent of the state of Gotham during these graphic novels. They don't take story moments out and make them happen. That is mainly linked to defeating the big boss in each of the scenarios. Apologies that
0: this is very similar to my questions in Etherfields, but... Again, reading all the comments, one of the main things that came across is rules issues and not so much the basics, but the ambiguities of certain things that people just didn't know whether they should
1: be doing A or B or C or D in certain situations. I think this is a very good rule book disguised as a very bad rule book. (laughs) Okay, elaborate. When you start reading it, you're lost. And then eventually when you get to the end of it, you're like, okay, everything was there. But I had to read through all 24 pages, and there's four rule books, by the way. It's the basic one plus book one, and then short ones for book two, three, and four. It's just talking about things that will happen or haven't been explained, or this is that. Yeah. You will find yourself in the first game constantly going back and referencing it. Now, it has got a very good index. It explains it. It's there. If people are talking about edge cases and exactly how to use cards and what exactly that means, I concur. I concur. Like It says, take your mutant off here and race with the police or whatever. And you're like, is that anywhere? Is that there? Can I do that? And you do have to have a little bit of, mm, let's make this make sense. It's a Cryptozoic thing, though. They're not FFG. They they won't be wordy on their cards. It's just, do this. Okay. That could mean two things. I'm going to go with the one that makes most sense.
0: I know exactly what you mean about rule books that don't follow the setup that we think should be should be the way sort of like have the setup at the beginning because my next game that i'm going to be talking about in a minute had the setup on page 10 so i've seen nothing i've put nothing on the table and it's telling me how to move things around i'm like why surely have your
1: setup on the contents page. with photos <laughs> setup <laughs> game concept go Yeah,
0: 100%, 100%. So, you talked about a little cheeky secret two-player game.
1: (sighs) Cryptozoica, cuckoo. Right. (laughs) Each scenario within the Dark Knight Returns is very achievable. Difficulty comes from the overall trying to keep it under control. I think that as long as you're aware of that, and you're like, oh, I won't finish it this turn, I'm just going to deal with that problem for later. You've always got a few little priorities. You've got little goals you're trying to do to unlock... ...your dice and your powers and stuff like that... ...which come in every every chapter... That's ...very cool that is... ...but you should win... ...and you should win every book... ...it doesn't get that challenging... ...they... ...I think we're probably aware of this... alright? Well, ...I'm saying that as a as a cult player who plays a lot of games... ...so this being slightly on the easier side... ...makes sense for who Cryptozoic are... ...and for what the IP is... ...they have a difficult mode... ...and they also have a two-player mode... ...it's very hard to find anyone who's bothered to play the two-player mode... The difficult rules and the two-player rules were printed only for Kickstarter backers and not available in any other way.
0: Right. What? (laughs) What? That's madness. That's not even good. That's the worst business sense because you want more people, a wider spectrum of people to be interested in it.
1: In my game, there is a bunch of components, tokens and cards for the two-player game. I don't have the rules. (laughs) Unbelievable. What? Now, I hope that one gets in trouble. But if you were to troll, and it's not available in the file section, if you were to troll the Dark Knight Returns forum looking for things, as I did when I was trying to get my head around everything, a Cryptozoic dude in a thread, in a post, has linked to those rules. And I've printed them off. So I now have them because I bothered I said at the beginning Cryptozoic fans don't know about BGG they have no reason to Batman fans don't know about BGG you've got this whole game mode two game modes that no one can play they're referenced in the basic rule books you go to the link that says you can get them and the link's dead because I decided no it's only for Kickstarter backers
0: that's craziness
1: (laughs) Okay, I've got the two-player rules. I have found a couple of reports from people who have played the two-player game, and they said, this is not throwaway, this is fantastic. They loved it. You and me are playing Dark Knight Returns two-player, I promise you.
0: The only thing that was putting me off was the solo player. If you tell me there's a two-player version, I am in. And anyone anyone listening who has the Dark Knight Returns, I'm sure Ronan wouldn't mind emailing me across if you want to email us for those for those rules.
1: Yeah, 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 cool. I'll get the link and I'll save it. And yes, anyone who wants them, no problem, email thegamepodcast at gmail.com and I'll fire you the link across if you want those rules. Right. Overall, Sean, I like a dark Batman story. As a slight aside, I've mentioned I've got Marvel Unlimited previously. I've been reading Jessica Jones 2016. I'm halfway through the series. That is wicked. Very dark. Takes you to some dark places. I'm enjoying that. Feels a bit Batman-y. Anyway. I like the pull in between the controller now and the long term. It feels, like I say, very Batman to be doing that. For long term, I need to play the difficult campaign. Hopefully I'll lose at some point in that. So I've got a challenge going on. And 100% going to make and play it. I'm quite excited about the two-player game. Which is never good because you're setting up expectations. But I think it might be a lot of fun
0: brilliant. Okay, so the game I was talking about with the with the strangely constructed rulebook was Magna Roma from Arcona Games and Matteo De Nardis, and Magna Roma is about building up a suburb of Rome. Anyone who's listened to the show knows I like me a bit of Rome. To do this, you have a wheel or rondel where well, you are going to be choosing tiles from it. You can jump one or two ahead with your dobber, and then, so you've got a choice of, always got a choice of two tiles to put down. Why are you putting tiles down? Well, you're doing it for two reasons. You're trying to connect shapes at the edges of the square tiles, and you don't have to connect the circle to a circle, although you can do, and that'll get you money, but a circle to a square will get you something completely different. But some of them will give you military strength, some of them will give you religious strength, lots of different things that... Also, there is a color factor in there as well. If you were to match color, so if I have two purple tiles and I match them, then I get two of that reward, and not just one. Again, why are we putting these tiles on the table? Because you're moving up different tracks. You're moving up a clergy track. You're moving up a luxury goods track. You're moving up the military track, and to get yourself various rewards scoring at the end of the game. And effectively, that is
1: Magna Roma. I looked into the Kickstarter release. Yeah. I wasn't convinced, so we're off onto a little... You're going to have to persuade me about Magda Roma, all right? I f- okay. I feel like they were doing some things and that were first game mistakes. So I'm going to hit you with some mm-hmm. some business, right? And yeah. this is from comments players who actually played it. <laughs> the variety of tiles and their powers is low, so it feels a little bit repetitive. You're getting the same sorts of tiles again and again.
0: You are getting the same sort of tiles again and again. But, as I found out from my horrifically bad first play of it, you've got to be very careful. It's all about the connections that you make. So, you might have the same tile three or four times, but it's got different connectors on it, and it's how you rotate that tile to connect with the other things that drive it. What you don't want to do, like I did, leave yourself loads of bare edges. Because the really good tiles only have one connector on them, and if if you lock those off, you've got three bare edges, and they get you nothing moving forward and i left a load of those thinking oh, i've been great getting all of these connected tiles because you've got to build in a five by five grid so you can't just go off miles on in one direction so it's a very tactical decision that you have to make and you have to keep an eye on the future and that's why i don't think the tiles are that repetitive because you're constantly worrying about setting yourself up for the next tile the next three tiles
1: okay In terms of the length of the game now, if you got mushed, this might not have happened to you, but (laughs) several comments that you've topped out on too many tracks towards the end and your last few tile draws, when it should be ramping up, should be the most exciting part of the game, you feel like there's too many duds in there because, well, uh, this is going to match to blue, but I've already maxed out blue. Oh, I didn't get to that point.
0: (laughs) Neither of us did to be better. Nat played a lot better than me in the game. But what I did realise, and it was my own fault that I did this, my last two, maybe three tile draws were complete duds. So I was, it didn't matter to me what
1: I was but taking. A lot of people that, have reported that, though, that the last few draws just is too often you get duds.
0: I put that down to poor play. Nat set herself up and made it so that her last two or three were quite important to her and gave her nice little point bonuses.
1: Okay. Did you get the deluxe version?
0: Unfortunately, yes, and this is very rare that you'll hear me say this. I would much rather not have the deluxe version, and I won't play with the deluxe uh, buildings ever again, because they actually inhibit gameplay. Well,
1: that wasn't where I was coming from, but by all means, continue.
0: (laughs) So, uh, what happens is you you get luxury buildings, so the Colosseum, whatever, the Forum, and you place them on the corner of four tiles, and... To power those buildings to get the points or the bonuses from them, you've got population that comes into the game as well, and you have to put little meeples onto them. Brilliant with the tile. You can get your five, six, seven meeples onto the tile. No problem. Try and get them on onto the little bit of crappy plastic. You've got them balancing on their head. You've got them all spread around it. You've got them off to one side, lying down, falling over. It looks just terrible, and it's just a pain in the bum. So don't do that.
1: The thing I'd heard was that actually the component quality generally is quite low. The quality of the tiles and stuff is quite low. And the buildings, when they did a deluxe version, all they did was put buildings in rather than make the tiles nicer and everything else nicer. To make it an actual deluxe version, it was just, here are some more buildings. But actually, I paid for a deluxe, and I expect there to be better quality components in there.
0: I can't defend them on that. It did feel like it was made on the cheap. And as I said, I wouldn't have the deluxe over the other version. It's not worth it.
1: Nothing I've read about Magna Roma has convinced me yet, Sean, but the one comparison I saw a lot, and I'm pretty sure you haven't played it still, was that it's Carpe Diem but worse, and the Carpe Diem is better, tighter, and more mean, and I like the sound of that.
0: Oh, yeah, well, as I I haven't played Carpe Diem, so I couldn't do the comparison, but for Magna Roma itself, it is a basic tire layer, but the things that I really like about it and that bring it, slightly clear of the crowd are that you have other options within the spectrum of the game so the religious thing is not just about moving up the track and getting discs and multiplying those discs by where you are on the track you've also got the option to place the disc onto a tile that's already been placed and score that tile again which is really tempting and you've got a decision to make exactly the same the military build-up you're not just going to the end of the track You're deciding when to spend that military power and on what to score. At the bottom of the military track, there's different things to score at the end of the game, but you don't automatically get them. If I've got loads of red buildings and they're all together, then there might be a thing that says, right, for pairs of red buildings together, you score for each one. Brilliant. I'm going to aim for that. Nat also knows I'm going to aim for that that's what i think takes it away it's not just a mindless lay tiles to score your points from the tiles you're thinking ahead you're thinking end game points you're thinking about multipliers and i think that just elevates it slightly i'm not saying it's a brilliant game but i did enjoy my plays of magna roma and i
1: would give it a 68 you're liking everything this week i'm not (laughs) sure you convinced me on magna roma but i like the positivity right Astro Knights 2023, one to four players from Nick Little and Will Sobel from Indie Boards and Cards. This is an actual re-implementation of Aeon's End, Sean, given our previous discussions about (laughs) re-implementations. It's Guardians of the Galaxy, the co-op deck builder, only they couldn't get the license. So you are some sort of sci-fi character. There is a big baddie that has a health and they have their own deck, usually a couple of decks, and there is an interesting turn order system whereby... Each of the players and the baddies, you have cards which you shuffle together and then you draw one, and that's whose turn it is. That person gets to fire off any weapons that they've prepared from the round before, they go in the discard pile, then they play out weapons and they spend fuel to buy more cards. Now, the thing is, as you put cards in the discard pile, when you run out of your draw pile, you just flip your discard pile over very Aeon's End, so you're never shuffling. So, in theory, there's clever strategies there as to how I'm building up my discard pile and what order my cards are going to come out in. I've got a home world I'm going to defend. I've got a powers I can power up on myself, individual powers, or my allies, or the home world. And usually the enemy has got a track which they can power up via play of their cards, which will give them special things they shoot off. Like the basic one has an artillery deck, but the more complicated ones have other things that go on. The baddies have cards they draw. They're usually going to be strikes, which will cause damage to us or to our home world, or they're going to be minions which go into play. And then at the beginning of... Every enemy turn after that, they're going to do something, usually damage us or damage the core world. Once you get through the enemy's deck, they're going to level up, become more powerful, or their minions become more powerful. And there are a certain number of levels they can go through. If they get to the end of their top level, you've run out of time, basically it's a timer. If you ever reduce their HP to zero, you've won. If they reduce your HP to zero, you can continue playing. Any damage you take from then on is doubled and goes on the home world. If everyone's got all the damage, or the homeworld's down to zero, then we've lost the game. Interesting in Aeon's End, Sean, it's been come out in a million different versions. Very hard to keep track of. What's a expansion? What's a standard expansion? There's a legacy version. I thought, let's start again with Knights. I played Aeon's End back in the day. This looks interesting. It retains that very interesting turn structure, although, incredibly, they've maintained the awful balance issue with it. Because... Playing with just two players is much easier than playing with any other higher count because mm. your deck gets more turns to develop between enemy turns than if you're playing with three. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. How did you not fix that? Aside from that, Astro Knights, I'm going to tell you now, make it quick.
0: <laughs> so... Effectively, what what I think they were trying to do was give Aon End more personality and give you an identity and try and try and sort of g- draw you in like that because Well, End still, you still you had
1: influence. an identity in Aeon Z. You did. You, you were did, inventive.
0: but it wasn't like I think they've tried to put more energy into Astro Knights and you are the knights are fighting and try and give you that sort of impetus. The, the Guardians, right? Guardians, you're the
1: guardian. God, well,
0: yeah, Guardians. yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy. So, did they manage to do that, or is it just another version of Aeon End?
1: No, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, okay, you can is- power. power up. In the base game, a couple of them are handy. Some of them are useless. i not useless, but near enough. I bought the expansion to try and liven this bad boy up. The two <laughs> characters that come in the expansion both their powers are really handy and I'm like well, why are, Why hasn't everyone got a good power? If you do random draw-outs someone's going to get because they're going to go why am I so rubbish? You tend to get power-ups that uh, can go to anyone. You usually focus on one or two players because it's like well yours are rubbish mine are good so I'm going to do my power. Very wonky on the on the power selection.
0: The only main thing that kept coming through in the comments was a bit of a slog taking down the boss and Generally, most people on the comments said that why not just play Aeon's End? and They didn't understand why this existed.
1: Neither do I. So let's summarise hey. After the Nights. <laughs> they took Aeon's End and they made it incredibly boring because the cards and the powers are incredibly, incredibly dull. This one gives you two fuel. This one gives you two fuel and you can change one card. This one does three damage and you get one energy. This, they're just so dull! It feels like a slog because you're not doing anything interesting. You're not co-op in an interesting way. The most co-op is I can fire your weapon, but I'm going to fire it at the beginning of my turn anyway. Yeah, but I could fire it now. Situationally, sometimes, if you're doing the last bit of damage to a minion, that is handy. Mostly, it is rubbish. That is a power that comes up again and again. The number of cards in the base set is limited. I can think of an interesting turn in four games of this. No, I can't. Is it a bad game? No, it's not. The whole structure of Aeon's End and Astronauts is clever. The very turn thing, the fact that the bosses feel like they've got another game which the bosses have got more personality than the players. The fact that you've got the dual thing of trying to protect the homeworld. There's almost no healing in the game. There's one character that's got healing as a power. You almost have to pick him, otherwise, you're just you're wearing down so quickly. Especially unless you're playing the first boss. First boss you can beat. Get above that one with no healing. You just came like I oh, this this was bad luck, I got hit with four. I've got no way of mitigating that. Oh mate I don't know what they I I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why. Astronauts. I don't
0: know why. Okay. Well I'll try and lift lift the moodless like You're not gonna, to are you? To... I
1: know you're not gonna. Let's not pretend.
0: <laughs> to Marvel damage control from WizKids design boat Amari Akio. In damage control. You are a damage control team that's cleaning up after a major supervillain versus hero battle and you're salvaging some of the rubble to make into things and you're just basically trying to be the best cleanup crew than the random Marvel City. To do this, it's a... Deck builder of sorts where you've got a load of cards thrown into the middle of the table face down. You don't know what they are. They, they are the rubble. There's a couple turned face up so you can see them. You are playing your cards to turn over cards, to pick up cards from the rubble to get them into your hand to chain off things and eventually to bury them into your scoring pile a little bit like valley of the kings where you have the little scoring thing you have to tuck the cards into to score your points you've also got some superheroes that are going to come onto your tableau and give you in-game powers or end game scoring that's pretty much it
1: marvel damage control how's your rule book i don't remember it being terrible well, it's be been noted as being the worst rulebook of all time, from all parties.
0: Really? Oh, I didn't, but I did watch it being played, so I probably knew most of
1: it going into so it. So you didn't read the rulebook. Okay. There's a big complaint about, so you can turn certain cards over, and they have got symbols, which are events, and those events can chain and chain and chain, and they can end up yes. doing much <laughs> mental stuff like decimating the hero market. So the hero you're building up for is just dead, and no one had a chance to do it, and the game just decides to play itself sometimes
0: yeah so you turn over things and if it's got a symbol on it then you will have to do that action for every card that you turn over so some of them move these heroes along so they just go away the ones on the end of the row some of them make you drop another card we've had it where you've we've just dropped cards for about a minute straight and it's not you dropping the card somebody else has to drop the card haven't quite figured out why that is but maybe it's just an interactive thing. <laughs> In case have you're a card-dropping
1: genius and you can set things up.
0: Indeed. And therein lies my first issue with this game. It is so long for each turn. And it can be longer. And you're dropping cards. Oh, no, I'll have to drop another one because that one had a sense. Certain... Oh, no, i have to drop another one because that... And then you carry on. That's before you even start. And the cards chain off each other. You, by the end of the game, you've got a big hand of cards and they're chaining off each other. Boom, 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 boom. It might be five minutes. It might be six, seven minutes sitting, waiting for someone to finish their turn. And you have no interest other than if they turn a card that makes you lose a card. And then they You are tell right. You, so I do you...
1: have no interest, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to cut through, and... I, I actually think the concept of it, the concept of like being in these... I always like the idea... Of being in these world, well, these things going on. And what about the other people? What about people have been affected? Yeah. What's going on? 100%. I love that concept of things. And let me tell you, let me tell you, my man. <laughs> I found I found one of my new BGG best users. His name's Slick Rick. Four Ks. Remember that? Right. And right? just I don't know. I've never played it, but I, I vibed with this comment. Slick Rick, four out of ten. Well, it's not a glamorous design, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but I'm like, yeah, okay, let's go with that.
0: I don't know what it means either. It's a boring design. I can't say that about it. You know what? Everything in it kind of works and there are some good ideas, but they have not chained those ideas together in an enjoyable way. And that's the issue. It's not enjoyable. We talked about Astro Knights being a slog. This is just a slog. This should have been a 15, 20 minute game in our whoosh. There you go. I thought it was, Lovely in job.
1: fairness. I thought it was.
0: Game that me and James played was over an hour. And granted, sometimes he was getting a bit confused about the ch- how the cards changed, and we had to stop and out to explain, right? That change off that, and then you can do that, and then that's how you get that.
1: Was he confused because he read the rule book?
0: <laughs> it could have been. It could have been. But, oh, my God, we talk about things outstanding welcomes. This one is banished to the garage.
1: It's not welcome in my house. Well, I'm banishing it from the podcast. Give us a figure.
0: Let's move on. <laughs> I'm going to go with Slick Rick 40. <laughs>
1: I'll go with Slick Rick wherever he goes. All right. Let's go two-player 2019. That Both of my remaining games are two-player 2019 games. This one is Mandala by Trevor Benjamin and Brett J. Gilbert, part of the old Gamebridge game design group. Look out games from the two-player range. It is a game in which there are 100 and something cards. As an equal 18 each of six different colours. You lay out a tea towel and there are two mandalas. For the mandalas, there's a mountain for each of them and they start off with two cards in you. Just The cards, all they have is a, is a colour on them. They look nice though, the square cards. And then on either side is a field, is what it's called, for each of the two players, for these two mandalas. And you have a cup which starts with two cards in and you've got to get cards into your cup to score points at the end of the game. You hand a six cards, there are three things you can do on your turn. You may play one card into either mountain. The cards that go into the mountain are in effect going to be scoring cards and they're the ones you're going to draft once the mandala is complete. You can only add a colour of card to a mandala in an area where it's already present. So if a red was in the mountain, you couldn't have reds in the fields. If Rachel already had purple in her field, I couldn't put it in the mountain on my field. You get the idea. And that's a big part of the game is managing when and where colours go in. Because when you've got all six colours in a mandala within the two fields in the mountain, that's when it's going to score. You're going to look and see who's got the majority of cards in that mandala and they get first draft from the mountain. When you draft cards, if it's the first time you've taken that colour, it goes into your river, which basically tells you how much each colour is worth to you in this game. So let's say the first cards I draft is three reds from a middle. One red will go in the one point box and the other two will go into my cup. They're now worth one point each. And every red that I draft the rest of the game is going to be worth one point. The second color I take is green. That goes into number two. And every green card I win from now on is going to be worth two points. Groovy. So you're looking at your hand of cards. The other thing you do, instead of putting one in a mountain, or when you put one in a mountain, by the way, you can drop to three cards as long as you don't go over your hand size. You can put all of the cards of one colour into a field. That's how you're going to attempt to have the majority of cards, but that is limited, obviously, by what colours are already in play. Or, especially towards the end when you try and manipulate colours, you can put all the cards of one colour in the discard pile and draw an equal number of cards. When the discard pile runs out, the next time a Mandala is scored, end the game. Or if anyone gets all six cards into their river, all six colours are scoring for them, That's the end of the game. Very difficult to get multiple six-point cards because you can see what the other player's doing. You can see, oh, Rachel's got all the cards apart from red. I cannot let her win multiple reds. So I'll start firing reds into the fields because once they're in the fields, they can't go in the scoring in the mountains, so no one's going to get any. And there's a lot of manipulating each other and cutting off opportunities to each other and there's a lot of brinksmanship and one-upmanship as soon as like one of the mandalas got one or two colors left to go you're really like oh am i going for this am i going to throw it in to score more am i likely to get first draft or i want to make first draft more valuable so i put another purple in there so i'm gonna get rake of purples or shall i put more cards in there because i'm going to get second draft and i want to be able to get a bit of a selection a lot of thinking going on a lot of brain activity over this tea towel sean it's the, it's the most stinky tea towel i've ever seen
0: Firstly, did you say they were square cards? Yes. I don't like non-rectangular cards.
1: Okay, you're a weirdo. Let's try and move past this. We'll go back to therapy later. (laughs) I feel
0: weird. They don't feel right in your hands. I only got dibby dibby hands. It's fine (laughs) for me. So the thing that I couldn't quite get right with was the, the thought that not knowing what cards are valuable it seemed like a tough sell until like not knowing until later in the game what cards are valuable. Sell me, why is that interesting? How can you manipulate it?
1: You're deciding for the most part, apart from the first two that gave me a bit, what cards are able for scoring. So you get to manipulate what's going on. It's turned out over our plays that now we end up with quite often quite similar rivers because we're being so cagey with the colours to each other. You're in almost complete control of the opportunities available. And it means that that play is just as important as getting enough cards down to win. Because if you win and they're all low value to you, there's no point winning. You've got to create some value in the middle without giving the other person opportunities.
0: So I'm, I'm starting to get the impression that you're, you're digging this one. You're liking it. Was it that way from the start? Because it's another one. I always like to know what people's first impressions were so that I can tailor my first impression of the game. Was it one that
1: you were confused at? How was your first game? I read the rules and I was licking it. I was like, yes, this sounds... Three simple actions. We're good scoring. It's mean. It's brutal. You're in each other's face. I was like, Yes. As usual, this tends does tend to happen with a, a game like this. If it's a complicated Euro, Rachel's going to smash me straight off. With a game like this, I won, I won close. She beat me in a tiebreaker. We are getting now, where she's going to be smashing me soon, and then I'm going to have to really train and like sort of ninja myself <laughs> to be able to have it. It's going to be like patchwork rice. Oh, I've just destroyed you. <laughs> so I'm we envisaging bummed. a
0: Rocky, a Rocky Four montage, Ronan. Oh, you, you run it, running run run in the slow and bench pressing cards, square. Oh, cards. just
1: tea towels, just like just all different tea towels, like just practicing how to hold squares as well as I can. Like, yeah, yeah, in the burning heart, <laughs> running up four stairs, catching my breath, doing another three or four, catching my breath again.
0: Cards on fire.
1: You happy? You get over there, <laughs> Ronan's mandala journey. Yeah, I loved it from the off. She loved it from the off. This coming on the back of Splendor Jewel, it has been a good run for two-player games. Let me tell you, give it five more plays, it's in the top 100. This is a Ronan and Rachel classic in the making. Mandala. It's so clever. Simple, abstract, no theme whatsoever, but so beautifully brutal.
0: Not so brutal is Shake That City from AEG, from designed by Mads Flu, and... Kare Tondal Kiar, what shake the city is, and there is a gimmick here. You shake a load of cubes in the box, and you, there's a little pressy button that's powered by elastic bands, and it leaves you a perfect three x three grid of cubes at the bottom. They drive your action. So, so there's there's reds and blues and greys and greens and blacks. Where they are, how many of them there are, and the orientation that they're in, you must then choose which ones to take and place onto your city grid. If I can't place them, I can't have them. And they all represent different parts of the city, shops, factories, parks, houses, and roads. And they all score in slightly different ways. Roads need to connect to the edge. Parks are like to be near to houses. Yeah, you get the picture. Also, around your board are more scoring. So, if you manage to fill a column or a row, you can flip over a tile. But also, attached to that tile is another way of flipping over that tile to score three points. It might be have four houses in that row, it might be have four different colors in that row. That's it. It's a very, very simple game. It plays very quickly. Half an hour tops with three players we found because you're all doing things together. And yeah, that's shake the city, shake that city even.
1: You like a little lay down trying to get some goals spatially this, this time around. You've been I on do. Kit? It's one of Nat's favourite mechanisms in games, and I sort of lent into it a bit to get more games played, if I'm honest. <laughs> okay, she does listen, so you know. <laughs> it was likened to Quadropolis mixed with a polyomino game. Discuss. It's not really polyomino, it's just Squares. Basically. They said a polyomino feel because things score from columns and rows or something.
0: I suppose you could get a polyomino shape of cubes and you have to place like three black uh, tiles in an L shape or things like that. But uh, yeah, it, you have to be aware spatially of where you're putting things and making sure that you leave space for them to score because they, they all need different things next to them to score.
1: And the quadropolis bit, doesn't matter where it is. Are there are there exterior goals to achieve rather than just the relationship between them?
0: The tiles around the edge, you, you for completing your rows or getting a certain amount of different colours in, in rows and columns as well. So there's various ways to score. Generally, it's not that hard to score things if you concentrate on it. it it's their juggling act, isn't it? It's trying to get everything and get getting at least as much as you can scored.
1: Are the goals interesting enough to mean that there's any struggle or each game feels different, or is it all very gentle and you're going to mostly do what you want to do? Like, is there writing, scoring, clever plays? How much room have we got here?
0: There's not that much room. We haven't played the flip side, which introduces a beach and the buildings score slightly different. It does feel quite the same, but as I said, it's gone very quickly. The only time that things will be a bit frustrating or in a good way are when the start player chooses a colour, then nobody else can have that colour. Everyone else can have the same colour as each other, but the start player chooses a colour that nobody can have, only they can have. And that's the only time you get that sort of real interaction and frustration.
1: Okay. For me, and maybe this just might be me, if this is one of those names from AEG, which means I just can't tell what game is what. Rolling Heights and Shake That City and... Uh, Let's Go and Tiny Town or whatever. And I, th- I think I see some similarities between Tiny Town and this one, now you've explained it. Their marketing doesn't work for me. Got to be the mechanism, but this one is feeling perhaps a little too light for me to want to dig into. I think at the base of it, it will be a little bit too light for you, Ronan. Well, like, Mandala's light and easy and very simple actions, but there's interaction, the stuff there. I don't mean just light, I mean, like, it's a bit too...
0: Yeah, yeah, no, there is meat on the bones of few mechanisms in mandala work for what it seems this one may be less meat on the bones there are decisions to make there are times when you can tuck people up and stitch them up a little bit but it's all very light i think it's supposed to be a, a filler game pretty much two players it's gone in 20-25 minutes and that's where it sits i think it's a really good filler game that gives a little bit of thought behind it and you have to concentrate and you can play poorly or well depending on your spatial awareness and how cleverly you pick things but it's not that important. There's always something you're going to score off. There's always something to do. That's where it kind of sits for me. It's not a massively interactive game and for that reason, I'm going to give Shake That City a 68
1: as well. Two 68s? 268s noted air, land, and sea. The other 2019 two player game, this one's from John Perry and Arcane Wonders. There are three theatres of war. It is an 18 card game. I don't know why the world settled on 18 cards as the amount, but this is another 18 card game. <laughs> I
0: did see that when I was reading it. <laughs> so,
1: I know these by like 18 card design contests and that, it's all very interesting, but why exactly 18 anyway. <laughs> There's Air Land and Sea and there's Air Land and Sea cards and they're each numbered one to six and unless it's a six, it has a special power on it. Each player gets six cards and over the course of the game, you're going to take turns playing one card at a time Generally, to the theatre, it is linked to, although there are ways to bend all rules. You can also play cards face down. There are ways to flip cards over. There are ways to prevent, like the number five naval card is a blockade, prevents there being too many cards either side of it. There are manoeuvres in which you can flip your cards or the other player's cards. There are ones that will boost, like air support will boost the theatres either side of it. They have different effects, and you're trying to win two out of the three theatres. Now, if you do win two out of three theatres, you score six victory points. The first of 12 victory points is the winner of the game. Sean, I hear you ask, why are you bothering to score six points when you only, it seems like you only have to win twice to win?
0: Why are you bothering to score six points when it seems like you
1: only need to win twice to win? The clever withdraw mechanism. Thanks for asking. <laughs> At any point, any player until they've played their last card, can say, no, no, this is not going well, I'm going to withdraw. And depending upon the number of cards left in their hand, the opposition will win, but will win a reduced number of victory points. So if I withdraw, it depends if you're first or second player, but let's say if I withdraw four cards in hand, Sean may only win two points rather than the six I felt like he was going to win if this game continued going. It is a game in which you're fighting over three columns, we've had lots of them various powers various cards they all work quite nicely if we're going to talk about the usp for air c is that withdrawal mechanism and whether you're able to celebrate your small wins oh i got a great hand I thought it was going to win six points actually I only get two and also the ability maybe to lure people in and allow them to play more cards while you hold back your heavy hitters although the timings of powers can then get quite interesting and complicated and you don't want to be blockaded out from being able to play your six card you're hanging on to and stuff like that so there is a bit of thought going on here and reading off the other player any initial thoughts on air land and sea Sean?
0: So I'm going to ask you to compare it to a game which I've never played because it kept coming up in comments. Battleline. Is it a Battleline imitation and where does it sit in terms of better or worse?
1: Battleline is sort of almost a name for a genre. Instead of... Because there is no name for this genre that's become accepted. It would be like just calling every deckbuilder Dominion and comparing it yeah, to big yeah. Dominion, which we do a fair amount. So the Battleline is just the idea. It's the Knizia one where you have these theatres of war. It's much mathier... And there are fewer special powers. Uh, it's been a long time since I played Battleline. that let me tell you. <laughs> uh, you're trying to create sort of patterns. I, I'm pretty sure you've played me at Battle Line, by the way. It might have been a really? long, long time ago. Yeah, oh, we've maybe, played it. Maybe. Each battle is much quicker... Your decisions are much more immediate. In Battleline, you're drawing cards and there are tactics cards. And you don't know exactly what's going on. In Airland and Sea, for each of the battles, you see your six cards. You are creating an overall thought about what you might want to play them in. But you always do have to react to what the other player's doing. So it's good in that I'm not just getting a set pattern. We play them out and see what happens. The withdrawal thing makes it very different. So Battleline... I mean, overall, if you're talking about within the whole spectrum of games, they're very similar. If you're talking about they are two card games in which you are fighting over three columns and they're war games... It doesn't feel very similar to Battleline to me.
0: Cool. Uh, theme come through at all? A lot of people are saying it's quite pasted on, but then I would expect it to be with an
1: 18-card game, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, there's attempts to sort of make what the cards do match their powers to what sort of a unit it is. So the blockade is like the battleship, and the support is is obviously uh, uh, it's at planes and stuff. So there's an attempt there, but it feels like you're combating mm, thematic... Mm.
0: You're much more of a fan of this type
1: of game for me, so
0: I'm interested in your final thoughts on this one. Ben.
1: Firstly, L and Sea has been dealt a, a tough blow here because it's been, in the similar time frame, competing for our table time with Mandala and Splendor Jewel, which we've both enjoyed a lot. It is a good game. Whether it goes beyond good for you to one that you want to play again and again is all down to that sort of poker mechanism of when do I fold? If you really enjoy that and you really enjoy the cat and mouse and the try and lure people in and the when do I go and you don't mind the fact that, oh, I had a great plan and I've been stimmied here. Sometimes you feel a lack of fulfilment when you've got a great plan in place because the person folds and you go, oh, I didn't get to see that through. As long as you can accept that and be aware that it's not a throwaway, it is a central mechanism. Sometimes you're going to draw bad cards and you just have to get out of there. Sometimes you're going to draw bad cards and you can kind of skimmy, skimmy, and think you got a bit of hope. But often it's sort of dead money or just throwing good money after bad and getting out of there quickly. So Ed Anderson is a good game. I don't love the withdrawal. Rachel doesn't love the withdrawal. So it's probably not going to get into our two player rotation. But it is certainly worth your time having a look at and having a play. It doesn't take that long to play. It's very, very easy to learn. It plays very smoothly. It's interesting. It's different. I think I might hang on to it because every now and then I might get hankering to to just have that slightly different feel of the of it. it's a bit different. It's just a little bit. It's very for 18 cards. I've done a very good job. I just don't want to play it all the time. Lovely. Okay, that's
0: the last game covered for, for the show. Thank you very much, Ronan.
1: Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you everyone for joining us on this episode. And if
0: you would like to go along to the Dice Tower Network, where we are proud members of, and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming good news. Hopefully galore. our link
1: is updated by now.
0: Because <laughs> we haven't
1: been out there <laughs> since one nine seven.
0: True, so. true. If you wish to email us, and of course uh, the Dark Light returns, if you, anyone wants to email Ronan about that, the email address again is thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com And please do email us give it with questions, uh, ideas for shows, whatever you want, please do. We love hearing from you. We are on social media, we have a Twitter page, a Instagram page and a Facebook page. And another way of contacting us is on our Board Game Geek guild. Pop along there. We'd love to hear from you. So, thank you very much again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Game Pit. Music by E. Aaron. Bye bye, 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 bye Boy, boy.